Okay. No, I, I don't think you're wrong. I actually agree with most of what you guys said. <laughs> In what world did it seem like a good idea to slurp a beverage into a microphone? Well, I was thirsty. <laughs> so... Anyway, Matt, okay. you were about to say something right. deeply okay. uh, insightful, I believe. Welcome once again to Free Associations from the Boston University School of Public Health, the Public Health and Medical Journal Club podcast for anyone who is as confused by the latest health study as I am in trying to do yoga. You guys, you guys yogas? Uh, I heard do- Noga. Yoga. Noga. No. What's Noga? It's on that, that thing that you heard on the, the the internet where you could some people hear one thing and the other. I heard Noga. Noga? Yeah. I, I heard Yanni. Yoga. I heard, uh, Pem, I don't know what Pem I heard. is your map. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm Matt Fox, professor of epidemiology and global health, and I'm here with Don Thea and Chris Gill from the Department of Global Health. Hey, Matt. Hello. And we are here, as always, in the Boston University Godly Studio. So, guys, I don't know. Have I ever mentioned to you guys anything about population health exchange? Uh-uh. No. I haven't yet. told what, you about what it. What is that? Tell us. Well, I will tell you. That is Boston University School of Public Health's resource hub for lifelong learning. You should check it out. That's a great idea. We should we should have one of those at Boston Yeah, no, no, we do. And you can find out more at www.pophealthex.org. Oh, that's using that internet thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. Type why, in, why exchange? Exchange? Yeah. It's like uh, a consignment shop. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. So it? you bring one thing in, you get another? You bring in your old health and you get new health. That's exactly what it is not. So it is a place, however, where you could find this podcast as well as many other population health learning programs and tools. And also just a reminder to everyone, we would love it if you would go on to uh, Apple Podcasts and give us a rating. I always say iTunes, but I think it's Apple Podcasts technically. Is it, Nick? Yep, Nick's it nodding. It is. All right. Or you can go to any other major podcast sites, and that will help people find us, and we would really appreciate it. Now on to the show. So today in our first segment, which is our Journal Club segment, we're going to look at a study that looked at the effectiveness of immunotherapy for treatment of lung cancer. Then in this, uh, Don's giving me a look. Is it not immunotherapy? Did it I is. say it wrong? Yeah, you're right. No, it is. Absolutely. Okay, you're just giving me a look like no, maybe no, I had said no something look. wrong. Then in the second part of our podcast, which is our deep dive segment, we're going to talk about whether it is okay to change your endpoints in a clinical trial and when it's okay to do so. And then in our third segment, which is our amazing and amusing, we will get into the things that just made us giggle or kept us going in our daily jobs. So let's get right into it with segment one. So we're going to get into an article that looks at whether uh, looks at the effectiveness of uh, treatment for lung cancer. I'm, I just want to make sure I get this right. Yes, it is lung cancer. No, no, I know that part. Uh, immunoth- whether immunotherapy, in addition to standard therapy, standard therapy is uh, effective at, at treating lung cancer. Uh, You'll get into the details, but it's a specific kind of lung cancer. This was published in the uh, New England Journal of Medicine with first author Lena Gandhi from the NYU Perlmutter Cancer Center in New York. The study was entitled uh, Pembrolizumab. Excellent. Pembrolizumab. Very well done. Plus chemotherapy and metastatic non-cell lung non, cancer. Non-small cell. Non-small cell. Well, I, did I just say non-cell? You did. Non-small cell lung cancer. So... As always, let me give you some of the headlines on this one because this one made a big splash. So 
Science Daily says, combination therapy doubles survival in metastatic lung cancer. The New York Times says lung cancer patients live longer with immune therapy. NPR says Merck immunotherapy drug shines in lung cancer study. And the Cape Cod Times, our very own local Cape Cod Times, I assume you guys are subscribers, refers to this as the Super Bowl of lung cancer immunotherapy. And another one that I found interesting, WSYM-TV, I don't know what that is, but says new treatment could, quote, melt away cancer. Don't know what that means or where it comes from. Uh, but there you go. Some of the some of the headlines on this uh, study. So, Don, I'm going to hand it over to you. Can you give us a breakdown of what this study was about and what they found, what they did? Sure. Why they did it? Sure. Um, yeah. So before I start describing the study, let me just give a little bit of a background on the cancer and the immunotherapy. Um, the, 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 the cancer is a bad kind of lung cancer. It's um, called non-small cell cancer, but it really comprises the majority of the cancer, lung cancer that is um, diagnosed in this country and throughout the world and is directly a result um, most of the time from smoking. Um, and the, the five-year survival for what we call stage four, which means that the cancer has metastasized to different parts of the body, is about 5%. Um, so it's a really, really bad cancer. Um, and the standard therapy is chemotherapy using two agents. One is a platinum-based chemotherapeutic agent, which is not very effective and, and really quite toxic. And the other one is something we call an antifolate. What it does is it blocks folate metabolism, which affects the cancer cells in a, in a, in a greater way than it does um, affect normal cells. Mm-hmm. Um, and cancer is notorious for es- being able to escape the, um, the effects of the immune system. In fact, that, that's, that's probably why you get the cancers, because your immune system has somehow been um, tricked into not recognizing the cancer cells. And so what the cancer cells in essence do, they mutate and they sort of put on this invisibility cloak so that the cancer cells themselves are really not seen by the immune system. Um, and there's this one um, there's this one sort of epitope or this, this sort of antigen, this thing that is on the surface of the T cell, which is called PD-1. And, T cell meaning an immune cell. Right. So T cells in the immune cell, the, the, the white blood cell in the immune system that is responsible for eating the cancer. Okay. So um, there, there's a, the, the T cell has this way of identifying the cancer. And the cancer, um, a lot of times, will develop a way of sort of blocking the receptor that the T cell recognizes mm-hmm. to say, this is cancer, this is not, this is not uh, self. Um, and there is a... Uh, the, the immunotherapy, in essence, is um, a way to block that blocker. Block so, the, so, got it. Yeah, it's like so, a double so, negative. So it's like a double negative. So in, in essence, what this immunotherapy is doing is it's pulling off the invisibility cloak. Got it. Um, and and in, in, in essence, what these are are monoclonal antibodies. So they're just proteins that have been designed to do exactly that. They bind onto this part of the cancer that deceives the immune system. Mm-hmm. So um, the hypothesis um, that these authors had was that a combination of chemotherapy and this immunotherapy in the setting of this kind of a cancer might actually have a pronounced effect. Because in essence, what you're doing is you're disrupting the cancer cells, bringing it into little pieces and, and um, sort of generating more of that antigen to allow the immune therapy to 
work better in essence. Mm -hmm. So that was the hypothesis. So what they did was they designed a double-blind phase three trial um, among 616 patients with metastatic non-small cell carcinoma. Um, and none of these patients had had prior treatment, and they were all stage four. They were all had metastatic disease, so a really bad prognosis. And they, it was a, a pretty straightforward design. There was, there was the best alternative therapy, which were those two chemotherapeutic agents um, and placebo, compared to those two therapeutic agents plus this immunotherapy, pembrolizumab. Pembrolizumab. Right. So the patients were over 18. They had to have one measurable lesion. They had to have um, a tumor sample with the PDL1 status measured. What's and the PDL1? PDL1 status is really uh, the amount of that that uh, antigen on the surface of the cancer cell, because they've shown before that if the amount of um, the, the, the percentage of cancer cells with that particular antigen on their surface is greater than 1% or above 50%, even better, then this immunotherapy is very effective. More likely to work. More likely to work. Got it. So, so, so the trouble is that the number of patients with cancer of that type is really quite small. So the, the number of patients that can benefit from this immunotherapy is limited, very limited. I see. So this doesn't pertain to everybody. Correct. Got it. Well, the, 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 that's what they were trying to address with this, this study, was that they were trying to expand the number of, of, of individuals who could benefit from the immunotherapy. I see. I and see. so in essence, what they're doing is they're, 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 they're trying to generalize this therapy. So it, the, the way they set this study up was it was at many centers. They, uh, the, the assignment was two pembrolizumab enrollments versus to, to one placebo you, enrollment. Yeah, they didn't, they didn't, they didn't randomize 50-50 like right. we have typically seen in most of the randomized trials. It was a two-to-one randomization where twice as many people got the, the, best, intervention. The, the intervention compared to the best alternative. Right, and then they stratified it by PDL one expression score. Really, the the number of, of uh, the, the the people with high expression of this particular antigen. Um, they had a and, and, an duck, and those would be the ones who we one would hypothesize would particularly benefit from from this drug, correct? Right, which is why they stratified because right. they wanted to look at the effect in, in both the the, the 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 low risk and the high risk groups. Um, and so what they had was they, they had a maintenance cycle where the, um, the, the, the chemotherapy would be given for four weeks and then 35 cycles of one arm or the other. Um, notably, if in fact the, the disease progressed in um, somebody who was in the placebo arm, as determined by um, a, an independent body, that individual was permitted to cross over and receive the intervention. And uh, it turns out that they, in fact, didn't censor those crossover events. Um, the assessment was tumor Im imaging at week six, 12, and every nine weeks until 48 weeks. And the endpoint was overall survival and progression-free survival. So two very, what we would call very hard endpoints in terms of their right. clinical relevance. Right. This, this is not like looking at a CT scan and seeing whether the tumor got bigger by two centimeters or smaller by two centimeters or no change. Right. This is actual, like, how long do they live? Yeah. Which is an un unambiguous... Bottom line. Right. Um, so the analysis was an intention to treat. They did Kaplan-Meier for endpoints, and they did Cox proportional hazard, sort of looking at the significance of the sort of um, the effect of one arm versus, versus the other. Looking at the effects, not the significance. The effects, right. Did I say that? You did. <laughs> Look at the significance. Yes. No. <laughs> 
Uh, and interestingly, the, the data that were presented in this paper were based on the first interim analysis. Now, um, all, of the, all of the endpoints that we're looking at in this paper that we're following, um, in fact, are continuing to be followed because they're going to be following this cohort, I think, um, for probably many years. In terms of the baseline, it looked good, except for some um, slightly more men in the intervention group, 62 versus 53%, but all the other baseline factors look um, basically balanced. 88% were current or former smokers. 63% had high PDL1. So those are the, that, the, those are the individuals who you would expect would respond to the uh, immunotherapy. The median follow-up was 10 and a half uh, months, and 41% of the placebo group ended up over this observation period crossing over to receiving the in, uh, the active therapy. Because they were doing poorly right. on the standard they therapy. Right, right. right. Um, so there were 235 deaths at 12 months. 69% um, of the treatment group, the active treatment group were alive and 49% in the placebo group were alive. Right. Um, the median overall survival was 11.3 months in the placebo group, and the median overall survival was not yet reached in the intervention group. So that means that half of them had not um, achieved the outcome. They were still alive, in other words. Right. Yeah. So the, uh, the hazard ratio, which is sort of like the risk ratio, um, was 0.49. So the effect of the intervention was um, about double. Yeah, about a 50% reduction in mortality. Right. And then there were several subgroup analyses um, that showed an even greater effect. Women, interestingly enough, seem to have a greater effect, although the confidence we'll, intervals are very we'll wide. Come back to yeah, that. yeah. Um, and also non-smokers. And interestingly, um, there was uh, an effect even in the group of individuals who had low levels of this antigen. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, so let me just clarify two things before we go on, which is. Uh, I think I might have uh, said something sort of misleading when I was asking you. So you're, you're saying here they were trying to make this therapy available to more people, essentially, that previously it would have been available to some people, but it's a small percentage of the population. Right. I, I was worried that we were talking about something that's only going to apply to a very uh, small percentage of the population with no, lung exactly cancer. The opposite. It's exactly the opposite. Right. So the, the idea here is to, is to broaden the uh, to indications. To show that it works in more people with lung cancer. Use. Second of all, you said um, this was based on an interim analysis. So the interim analysis being the idea that when with clinical trials like this, where we're concerned about the, the, the safety and effectiveness, that there is typically a data safety and monitoring board who, who looks at the data, um, maybe sort of in the middle of the trial, or it could be a several times, and uh, looks to see whether or not there is an effect early, earlier than we had anticipated, and then you might stop the trial early because it's already uh, to the point where we're very likely to see an effect even if we were to continue, and therefore it becomes unethical to continue. So this trial was stopped early. Um, so those are the two. So Chris, give me your take on this study. Let us Good study? Yeah, I think it was a terrific study, actually. Um, it was... Uh, you know, a com methodologically, it was very rigorous. The the blinding, the randomization were, um, as, as far as I could tell, very uh, well executed. Um, the study protocols were adhered to uh, exquisitely, and the uh, choice of endpoints really left very little uh, room for, you know, sort of like, you know, subjective interpretation. You know, I mean, dead or not dead is, is, is you can't really 
spin that uh, yeah. in, in any significant way. So I thought it was, it was a really powerful study. And it also comes on the heels of a whole series of, of, of uh, similar clinical studies with pembrolizumab that have similarly shown profoundly effective results. Um, and I want to make a couple points about this. And the, the, the first one I think that is really fascinating about this drug is that this, is the, this compound is the first time the Food and Drug Administration has ever approved a, any drug for cancer based on the presence or absence of a genetic marker. That is to say that they're looking to see what is the particular mutation that exists that allows this cancer to thrive and, or, you know, to, 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 to evade the immune system. Um, typically when you look at like, you know, any other cancer drug, you'll say this drug is indicated for the treatment of head and neck squamous cell carcinoma or liver cancer caused by, you know, Merkel cells or intestinal cancer caused by Merkel cells, you know, or squamous cell cancer or, or basal cell cancer or melanoma or I mean, whatever. But, but <laughs> whatever. All of these, right, yeah. for whatever. But they're all like looking at something on, on a microscope slide yep. from some tissue, this organ, this kind of cancer in this yep. organ. And that's how chemotherapies have been tested and approved. And for this one, the FDA has like thrown that model completely out of the window and said, you can use this agent for any cancer no matter what it is, leukemia, solid tumor, doesn't matter, so long as this biological marker is present, because it will work, because we are turning off a universal switch that affects cancer pathogenesis. And that is, to say that's a paradigm shift is to, uh, is to really put a, a, to try to minimize this. This, wow. is, this is a thunders, thunderclap in terms of oncology. Wow. Yeah, no, it's true. Huge change. I, it's it's, it's been, a huge change. It's been shown to be miraculous in, um, uh, um, in myeloma. Yeah, I mean, this. I was going through the the literature on this. So this this uh, um, product, this pembrolizumab monoclonal antibody, has been used for head and neck cancers, for melanomas, melanomas for Hodgkin's well. disease, for advanced renal cell carcinoma, gastric cancer, throat cancer. Right. Um, it, you know, and in each case, it has performed uh, extremely well. And in fact, when you're looking through the, the, the discussion narrative here, they kind of hint at this evolution in, in treatment paradigm. So you start with the inclusion of pebrolizumab as a, an adjunct to second-line therapy if first-line therapy has failed. And so... Which, by the way, presumably is the reason why they allowed crossover in this study was because if you're failing first-line therapy, this is the drug that you would go on to as second-line therapy, and therefore you have to allow people to cross over. But, but, right. one, but one of the things that the authors do say is that in this particular kind of cancer, if, um, if you start first-line therapy, uh, oftentimes it progresses so quickly that you become so yeah. debilitated that there's not enough time to go to second-line therapy, which is another reason why this is actually very exciting for this particular kind of and cancer. Which is also probably why the, the allowing people to switch to, to, the, to the people in the control arm to switch to the, essentially the intervention probably made very little difference, uh, even though essentially what you're doing is you're allowing people to, in the control arm to get the intervention, which well, I mean, normally would bias, bias towards the, the null, null right. probably didn't do that much. Given what because you're saying, because it was saying, a little bit late, because but, but, it was probably but, too late. But still, um, one can make the argument that the effect size would have been even greater if, in fact, that had not happened. You could, you could, yeah. So let, let me let me just uh, re, uh, regather the thread here. So the we, we started with this paradigm of of adding pembrolizumab to second line therapy in in cases where first line therapy had chemotherapy, traditional chemotherapy had failed. Now we've gone beyond that. Now we're saying, okay, well let's put pembrolizumab right into first line therapy to see does that make a difference. And in the, in the case of the study, unambiguously, it made a huge difference. It cut mortality in half, for goodness sakes. Um, and then, but now like the movement is towards do we need chemotherapy at all? 
can we just use premolizumab and get rid of all the cytotoxicity? Is the cytotoxicity, is the platinum and the, and the pemetrexate, is it doing anything other than poisoning the patient? And maybe we could just use immunotherapy, full stop, which would be, again, like that is, you know, the second thunderclap coming behind the first one. Uh, but that's not been tested. That is where this is going, that's however. Where we're that is where we're heading with this. And it is really plus, yeah, astonishing. Plus, plus there's other molecules that are being looked at besides PD-1 that um, might, might also be uh, amenable to immunotherapy. Now, it, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a monoclonal antibody. It's a protein, and one would think that it really um, shouldn't have very many side effects. It, has, it does seem to have fewer side effects than standard chemotherapy, and I think everybody's familiar with really all the awful side effects of standard chemotherapy. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But there are a small number of people who, in fact, do have very serious side effects from this kind of immunotherapy. And I think there was, a, there was an article yeah. in the New York Times about, about four or five months ago indicating that, that uh, sort, sort of raising, raising this, the, 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 this, this idea uh, that there are people that are, uh, have sort of kind of prolonged hemodynamic instability. And, what, and what does that look they, like? They, they, the blood pressure sort of just sort of drops off and they, they go into shock and they you know, have to go to the ICU. And um, it's a small number, but it's, it's not a completely benign medication. Absolutely not. And, but it, you know, the, the kinds of toxicities that we're seeing are in some ways quite predictable based on the mechanism of action, which is to say that this is a monoclonal antibody that defeats an anti-inflammatory response right triggered by the cancer it's to turn off your lymphocyte. So it is a pro-inflammatory response, and it is, you know, this, this immune checkpoint, you know, t uh, point mm -hmm. in pathogenesis that, that pembrolizumab is targeting is also important in, auto, in controlling autoimmune diseases. So many of the side effects that they've seen are, are autoimmune diseases like type 1 diabetes or Hashimoto's thyroiditis or thyroid hyperexpression of, you know, thyroid toxicosis, we call it, hyperexpression hyper of thyroid hormone, or damage to the adrenal glands or damage to the pancreas. You keep know, going, keep um, going. Pituitary. Uh, <laughs> okay, you know, don't keep going. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> damage to the pituitary gland, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and uh, also fibrosis of the lung. Uh, all of these are autoimmune processes. And so we're seeing, again, as you're saying, like the science really lines up here. We, yeah. we know how this thing works yeah. and it's all, it's behaving as it is. And in the current study, there were, there were in fact a number of individuals, unfortunately in the intervention arm who, who had uh, pulmonary uh, uh, inflammation and died. Mm. Um, there were none in the, in the control group. So, you know, this is not a, a, a benign treatment. They had autoimmune reactions to their lungs and they, and they essentially suffocated and it must've been a horrible yeah. death for them, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, and yet, despite that serious side effect, the, uh, the aggregate benefit was so overwhelming mm. uh, in favor of this compound. Yeah. So you guys both sound like your, your fanboys here, big, big supporters of this Anything concern you when you read this this trial? I mean, so one of the things that I couldn't really sort out is the, as you said, the the, the side effect data because um, virtually everyone had uh, some kind of. Um, I was trying to look at the numbers and I've lost it now. Ninety nine percent had something, an adverse event. Well, but that, of that's course, typical. That's typical in the case, and and obviously because they all they also all, all got chemotherapy. And you're also weighing the the scenario where. Um, we're talking about survival. Survival is is obviously the you know the the number one thing we're we're trying to establish here. But I was just curious. I mean, is there is there any indication that uh, the side effects are worse in the there, there immunotherapy? Were, they did seem to be, but 
Yeah, I mean, they were, there were more side effects in, in the intervention group than in the control group. But yep. remember, both of them got the same backbone therapy of chemotherapy. Yep. So, so, I, so you're adding on the, the additional side effects uh, due to pembrolizumab beyond what you would expect as the, the basal rate from the other two, the other two drugs. Yep. And uh, it, it did seem like uh, both arms experienced adverse events at similar rates, although it was definitely increased in the, in the intervention arm. Um, I had a little bit of concern, not, not a huge concern, but I mean, so this was a, a, a double-blind study, as you say, a hard endpoint, unlike the antidepressant trials that we've looked at, um, that would be much harder to manipulate. They, the blinding seemed to, from what we could tell, it worked. There was, um, as Don pointed out, some imbalance. So 600 people randomized. There was a 10% absolute difference in the percentage of men, which seems a little odd and like something you might want to actually control for. The second thing that, that, that does give me a little bit of pause is the fact that um, this study was uh, stopped early. Mm-hmm. And that's not a, that's not, this is not a criticism of the, the authors of the study, but generally when studies are stopped early, we tend to overestimate effects. And so, Don, your point about the non-differential misclassification maybe biasing towards the null, possibly, certainly, but I'm also I'm more concerned about the bias you know, the, the overstating of effects that potentially happens whenever we stop a trial early. And so, you know, it's not clear to me that we would expect to see such large effect sizes when this went into usual care. So those were, those were sort of my two criticisms. And then those are, you know, I mean, all in all, those aren't huge criticisms. Um, I have one other concern, which I'm curious your take on, which is the study was funded by Mark, Mark, Mark. And in particular, I mean, the, 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 which is the manufacturer. Merck is the manufacturer of the product. The study specifically says, and this is not surprising, the investigators agreed to keep all aspects of the trial confidential. And we have been looking at trials over the past couple of, you know, weeks in which there have been concerns when there is a drug company funding a trial. Should I, is it fair for me to have some skepticism just simply based on the funder, not based on what I'm reading, not based on the on the quality of the science that I'm trying to assess, just based on the fact that, you know, looking at previous studies that have been funded by drug companies, things looked okay, but we later found out that there was some manipulation going on. Yeah. Well, I think I've said this, uh, I said this on a, on a previous uh, podcast, that the question is not whether there's a conflict of interest. There is. There is. Um, but how do we mitigate the, the conflict of interest and protect the validity of the study? Yep. And uh, so I, I guess I would I would start by saying I was impressed in that same section that you, you just quoted from, mm-hmm. that they had that section where they um, went into the description of, of you know, the, this what? is a study that was sponsored by Merck. But then they went into who had access to data, who analyzed the data, who wrote the paper. And, and that I have very rarely seen that degree of transparency. I was disclosure. surprised by the extent of it. I agree. I was impressed by it. In fact, mm-hmm. I, I thought it was a, it was a, a good sign. I don't know whether that came from the journal or whether that came from the I, sponsor, hard but to know. you know, yeah, kudos I mean, to them I for mean, that. very specifically with respect to the last podcast where yep. we were talking about that, um, in this paper, they say all the authors attest that the trial was conducted in accordance with the protocol and all its amendments and with good clinical practice standards. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I don't know exactly good. how much. It sounds good. I, it I did not look good. at the protocol. I, did either you? No. Yeah. I mean, I think that would be one thing uh, of interest. I mean, they stated we, you know, there's reason to believe it, but there's yep. also reason to be a little bit skeptical. Yep. 
Okay. So, so in other words, I don't, there's nothing specific I'm going on here. There's yeah. no specific concern I'm getting at. It's just the, you know, when I, when I know there's a conflict of interest like that, it is impossible for me not to weigh that in somewhat, given all the evidence we've looked at in these past yeah. 23 podcasts or so when there has been a sponsor. And we've been burned before. Yeah. And the remedy is for this to be replicated by an independent group. Right. Yeah. And, well, and, and for us to see what goes on when this is starting to be used in, in usual care. The last point I want to raise is this issue of uh, the fact that the study did better. The, the effect size was greater for females than males. Fascinating. Yeah, that, that really stuck out because those two uh, confidence intervals, uh, point estimates and confidence intervals on, on their figure diverged so strikingly. Yeah. Why so the, the, the effect women size so much was better than men? Well, the effect size was 0.29, relative effect size 0.29 in women and 0.7 in men. So if you if you believe that's true, this is a, a drug that's going to work better in women than in men. The sample size was smaller in uh, slightly uh, smaller in there were fewer women than men, and the total number of events was fewer mm-hmm. in women than men. Right. Which is to say, I'm not convinced, and the reason I'm not convinced is um, these are relative comparisons, and to me. And many people dispute this, but to me, when you're looking for differences in effect sizes, you want to look on the absolute scale, not the relative scale. If if there are if there is just less mortality among women, then the effect size doesn't have to the the, the relative effect size can be a smaller or similar absolute difference than it was in men, and we would only know that if they had given us the data to be able to do the absolute comparison ourselves. And that's just one of my pet peeves in life yeah. when the data isn't presented. Mm-hmm. In a way that I can make the comparison any way I want, they're only giving me the relative comparison. So I'm not I'm not buying this until I see the actual data yeah. that tells me whether this is meaningful or not. Well, I would hope that they're they're planning on a, a follow up uh, exploratory anal- follow up uh, analysis, trying to understand, you know, what are the factors that that accounted for the the improved survival of women over men? Like, were they on average younger? Did they have lower you know disability scores? Yep. Did they yep. have you know, different kinds of tumors because of different smoking histories. I mean, there are many reasons why the cancers, because, you know, could have differed because the, the you know, the primary driver of cancer is cigarette smoking and the epidemiology of cigarette smoking in women and men is not the same. Yep. So it, that there, there may be some biological tumor differences as well as differences in, in, in the health of the individuals. Absolutely. But to me, the simplest way, I wouldn't even, wouldn't even worry about going that far until I'd first just seen whether... It, not whether you divide these two numbers, but whether you subtract them. Do they look dramatically different? And if they don't, then I'm not sure I would even necessarily pursue it. Um, anyway, anyone anyone want a last word on this? Well, I wanted to point out uh, one limitation and one kind of like, you know, curb your enthusiasm caution here. So the, the limitation is that nearly all of the participants in this trial had an, what's called an ECOG score of zero or one. ECOG? This is a, this is a scale that measures how impaired they are health-wise okay. at the start of the trial. So a zero would mean not at all impaired. And most individuals in this, this all of the individuals in this trial were a zero or one, meaning that they were very they were very healthy when they went into this uh, this clinical protocol. And yet the and, mortality and, rate is massive. And the mortality is massive. But remember that in, in a lot of patients with lung cancer, they are not healthy. 
Um, and so one needs to like be a little bit circumspect and recognize that in, 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 in real life practice, things may not go so well. Is this actually, isn't that different from what we normally see in clinical trials, where typically patients who are in clinical trials are healthier on average than the typical That's right. patient with the condition? That's right. So here they were, they were unusually healthy for patients with lung cancer. Let's put, let's put it that way. Yep. Especially um, metastatic lung cancer. Especially yeah. metastatic lung cancer. And, right. the, and the other thing that, I, that um, it, it goes to the, the very last figure in this graph, which is looking at the overall the tumor paper. progression, you know, freeze survival uh, in the paper. And the, um, you know, the, the pembrolizumab pembrolizumab group, you know, um, is outperforming the chemotherapy only group all the way through. But the curves keep going down and down and down and down and down. There's no sure. plateau, meaning that there is n there was no point where the data suggested that any of these intervals were actually cured. So oh, that, no. that death death was the final outcome in all in almost all of these individuals. One has to assume. Um, so when, you know, the, the newspapers are saying like, this is, this is a miracle cure. It's not, they're a cure. not cured, but they're, what, what is doing is buying them a valuable quality of life time. Uh, quality of life. Do we know that it's quality? Well, we, I, th I would think so because the pembrolizumab is relatively non-toxic. So, but this, that's a, you, you raise a good point. We we're, I'm, in, I'm assuming that, but I don't know that yeah, from these I data. Think we don't know that. Yeah. Okay. But Chris, you're, you, 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 you were addressing the, the, um, the, 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 not the overall survival because the overall survival does appear to plateau. Right. But I'm talking about, yeah, but here you're, you're censoring all the data. So in the first figure, we kind of lose all ability to really discriminate after a certain point because the, the numbers have gotten so skinny. But it's hard to say. At, it's at pretty the hard end, to say you see, the like the curves are just going down, down. Yeah, down. I, mean, so, I, I think the follow-up for the study will be really, really important. Yep. What is the five-year survival? Right, what is the ten-year exactly. survival uh, due to pembrolizumab? Yep. How long can you stain this? Is this a drug that you can take for years yep. to keep your cancer in remission? Yep. Many questions to be answered. All right, we got to move on. So let's uh, switch gears in our second segment topic. We want to talk about a controversy. It's not. It's not totally new, but we still thought it was worth getting into, which is something that. Uh, came up in the cardiology world, and this came to us through an article by uh, Larry Houston uh, in... Not Sam? No, Larry, in Cardio Brief. Uh, talking, the title of the article was Cardiology World Erupts into Controversy Over Change in Major Clinical Trial. And there was indeed a controversy, although it may in fact have been a bit of an overblown controversy. And the, the general story is this, that there is... There is a uh, clinical trial that is going on. Um, someone else is going to have to describe the specifics of the trial if we need it, called the um, ischemia trial. Ischemia, yes. Ischemia. Uh, what's wrong with the way I pronounced it? Ischemia? Yeah. <laughs> ischemia. ischemia? We're, we're all scheming here. Okay, the ischemia trial. Um, ischemia trial. Which ischemia? Yeah, you have to put the. You have to put the. Uh, the, the you sound like a late night radio host. <laughs> ischemia trial. <laughs> uh, and the issue that came up was there was a change to the primary endpoint in this trial that appeared in the clinicaltrials.gov, so the online registry where clinical trials are registered, very, very late in the trial. I mean, I think it, sort of as all participants were roughly uh, enrolled, the, 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 the endpoint was changed from a very hard endpoint, which was what, mortality and... And heart attack, documented heart attack. And heart attacks, to what, what did they change it to? Uh, unstable angina was added in as well as... I'm sorry, what's that word? Unstable angina. 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 Yes. Got it, angina. Uh, and these are softer endpoints. These are harder to measure and theoretically lead you to a less clear outcome. Right. 
Now the the controversy erupted largely because there was a perception that 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 change was made last minute. Yes. That this was sort of snuck in under the radar. And the reason for the change largely had to do with the fact that they were not able to enroll as many patients into their trial as they had planned. So they were planning for, I think, somewhere around 8,000 patients. They only got 5,000 patients into this trial because people are actually quite concerned. Doctors were concerned that the standard of care uh, needs to be followed and weren't willing to refer their patients to the study. So they weren't able to enroll as many patients. Therefore, you need more outcomes. And the way you do that is by changing your outcome to something that is more common. So they included these these less hard endpoints, let's just say. I, I, think, I think they were also trying to address what they thought was a weakness of a prior study called the COURAGE trial, where they did use these soft outcomes so, so, uh, and, and found no effect. Yep. Um, as, with respect to stenting, yep. and and they were trying to firm up the methodology to see if there was a real um, benefit now, with by by producing these hard outcomes. Yep. Now it turned out that the the there was a, the the controversy was probably overblown because in fact the decision to change the endpoint had been made much earlier. So this was not like a manipulation that happened. We looked at the data and didn't see anything. So let's change it and try something else and pretend we'd always been, been this was what we were going to look at. The decision had been made much, much further, uh, much earlier along in the process. It just hadn't made it into the clinical trials registry until late, but it was well documented that this change had happened earlier. So fair enough, maybe the, the controversy itself was overblown. But the question then becomes... You know, when is it okay to change your endpoint? What is the process one needs to follow when one changes the endpoint? And why? what is the justification that makes it acceptable to do so? And when is it just fiddling around with your endpoints to get the answer that you want? I don't recall, but did they change the endpoint? Did they decide to change the endpoint after they unblinded the study? I don't know the answer to that. I don't think it says in this say, article. I thought I'm going to say no. That would be pretty egregious. I don't know for sure, but I'm going to say I don't. I'm going to say my working assumption is that they didn't, but okay. somebody will let us know if I'm wrong. Yeah, Chris, what's your what's your take here? Oh, it is it is a dangerous um, thicket of thorns that one wades into when you're changing endpoints uh, in a in a trial. You know, in fairness, it sounds like the the authors of the ischemia trial had very little choice because they were going to have enrolled 5,000 out of their eight or 9,000, you know, planned participants in this trial. And, and yet statistically they could, you know, you can, even without looking at the analysis, you can, you can guess that you are not going to reach your statistical significance and your trial is going to fail just because it's underpowered. And so you're, you're stuck with a, like a hard choice now. Like, what do you do? You either say, well, we've wasted our time with 5,000 participants and come up with no useful answer, or we have to modify our protocol so that we can, you know, salvage some scientific value out of this, this tremendous, uh, investigation, you know, must have cost millions of dollars to do this thing. Oh, I think it was like eighty something million. Yeah, like preposterous amounts. I don't know. I may have made that number up, but I thought that's what but I read. We're some talking ridiculous like a- amount of money. I'm sure it was. You know, it blew the bank to do this, and, and so to sort of walk away with that with nothing really at the end of that would have been intolerable. Okay, I'm going to so, fight you on that one, but go ahead. Okay, okay. Um, I, I'm curious to hear what you think, but I, th- I think they they were a little bit backed in the corner. What I think they didn't do very well was to message this. Sure. 
Uh, it, it was poorly messaged. Yeah, they could kind of like you know did it in the middle of the night. You know, sent their their flunking off to update clinicaltrials.gov without telling anyone, and then it would just happen to be this other group of cardiologists were you know trolling CTG, and they saw, hey, the ischemia guys have changed their primary endpoint without telling us all. Yeah, I you should know? say they were not trolling clinicaltrials.gov. What happened was they were writing a different paper. They were writing a paper about uh, the impact of of blinding on these trials and the fact that if you don't blind uh, if you don't blind these trials there's there's very easy ways that these can be manipulated unintentionally and so they were going and they were using the previous trials the courage trial that you mentioned as examples and the 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 they were sort of pointing to i think they were pointing to this uh ischemia trial as being better because it had these hard endpoints right and then suddenly they negated that by adding the soft they, endpoints they looked at this to, to finish off their paper and noticed, oh, wait a minute, something's happened here. So there was not, I don't think there was sort of, nobody was uh, trolling them or, or trying to get them into trouble. I, I, it's just sort of was a coincidence. I don't mean trolling and like sending nasty yeah. emails to people on the web. Uh, I mean, like I trolling as in do, like do this. looking at data. Yeah. 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 So. Um, What's your take? Yeah, you, you I, I, it makes me Chris, very. This makes me very uncomfortable. You, I mean, you get it, hives. It, it, itching. <laughs> I can see you're itching right now. Yeah, scratching, <laughs> Matt. I'm scratching. You're scratching. You can't see itching. What's the difference <laughs> between itching and scratching? Scratching is what you do for an itch. An the, itch yeah. is a sensation. Itching is a sensation. It's the, a I wrote the itchy and scratchy show. I know. That's <laughs> yeah, all I know. You got to do both. It made me very uncomfortable this this study um, because it's 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 sort of you like you can't see an itch. Come on, you can't itch a scratch. You can scratch an itch. Come on, let's get it right. I can see an itch. Are you done? She takes a mile. <laughs> Not go. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Delayed reaction there. Itch. <laughs> God. Don, do you have any serious things to oh, contribute to this conversation? No, nothing. Um, no, it made me very uncomfortable because it's it's sort of like manipulating manipulating your your sample size. And it's just it it just seems to me to be um, not rigorous, and I, I, you know to 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 change the goalposts after the game has started is is just not fair. It's specifically when this study was designed um, categorically to try to address the issues in the prior study. So I think that no matter how much it costs, it, it it's it, it's it's a waste of money because what they probably should have done is they probably should have just gotten somehow some supplementary funding to enroll the full five thousand right. rather. Than, than, eight thousand, rather than just bail at five and pick different um, outcomes and say, "Well, we're see, done. It, we're done. It works." It was, it co- but if it cost eighty-four million to get five thousand, what's it going to cost? I mean, it's going to cost. It's going to cost a lot. It's going to cost a lot. It's going to cost more. But you're going to have a definitive answer, rigorous answer to the question that was not adequately answered with the prior study. So now you've spent eighty million or whatever it is, and you've not improved our knowledge. That we that was obtained with the prior study, particularly in light of that of of that study we reviewed a few uh, episodes ago, the Orbita trial, where they did the placebo acupuncture yep. for yep. unstable uh, for stable angina versus versus. Did you just say acupuncture? Uh, he uh, did. <laughs> did I say acupuncture? Yeah, I did. Oh dear. <laughs> They did not do. <laughs> they did not. Well, we're, we're hoping it was an, an accurate puncture. Uh, but, so they, they did placebo Stent. stenting versus <laughs> actual stenting and found yeah. that the patients could not tell the difference between who sure. got the stents and didn't get the stents. Neither yes. could their doctors. Yes. So, like, you know, so the placebo effect in, in stent research turns out to be really powerful. Yeah. And the guy who wrote that article, actually, that is, is the same one who, who blew the whistle 
uh, in his editorial on this ischemia exactly. study. Exactly. So these he are, these obviously are had that that paradigm, you know, hardened his mind that, that we need to be really careful about these soft endpoints. Go back endpoints. to the go back to the stent uh, podcast that we did. Uh, if you want any more like background on this, because it's, or it's intimately related around there. Okay, can I tell you guys why you're all wrong? Okay, yeah, let's hear it. Okay, no, I, I don't think you're wrong. I actually agree with what a lot of you you both said and i i do i mean you've sunk a lot of money into this and you you theoretically you want to get the best possible answer which means going the the getting the full 8000 and and really finding the answer but <laughs> i do think that some people so say that much... everything that happens after the butt is <laughs> bs <laughs> oh Donald <Tom, yeah. laughs> shame on you anyway I hate but but <laughs> I do think so much of the reason we're in this problem is because of this deification of statistical significance. Mm. And that we could do both here. This is the Matt Fox hobby horse. It is. <laughs> and I'm going to ride this all day long. There is, there is no reason we can't do both here. There's no reason we couldn't have come out and said, we're not going to get our, our desired sample size. We're not going to be able to... to Mm, definitively, I don't know if that's the right word. I don't think that's the right word. Definitively answer the 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 question of uh, death and and heart attacks based simply on a statistical significance criteria. Yeah. But we are going to learn a lot of really valuable information. Maybe we don't quite reach statistical significance, but that's the point at which we have to use reason as opposed to just statistical significance to draw inferences from the data that we have and not pretend like we learn nothing from an underpowered study just because it was designed to answer a particular question a certain way and we couldn't do it. So we need to, basically you're saying we need to be a little more thinking and more nuanced and less categorical. I do, I do. Now that doesn't mean we say at the end of this, if we find there's a benefit to you know one arm versus the other, but it wasn't statistically significant, we say, aha, we've answered the question. We should never say that based on the results of a single study, but we should say this is some evidence. It's not as strong as it would have been with the bigger study but we have more evidence and not act like we have no evidence yeah. just because we didn't reach statistical significance. And that's where I just get really, really hung up on this idea that statistical significance is poisoning our ability to think for ourselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it really bothers Agreed. me. Agreed. I agree. Agreed. But. But. <laughs> but in this particular instance, this particular study was created and designed specifically to address issues like you're speaking about with regard to the prior study. So I, I think in but they, general- But they're still doing it. I think they're still doing the same thing. They're just not going to get the sample size that, that you would have ideally wanted. You can still have that primary outcome and draw inferences and say, look, we you'll, know- You'll have an effect. It may not, might not be statistically significant. But look, this, is, this looks encouraging or this is, you know, and we're never ever- If they couldn't do it, nobody ever can. It can never be done because this is our best- hope to ever get the but, sample but size. But they threw in the towel. Halfway no, 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 through. no, I'm saying. So no one's ever, this is the best possible hope. No one else is ever going to do this study later again and try and repeat this. But let's take the data with the best information we have. Let's combine it with everything else we know and let's draw right. reasonable inferences. And, and of course, you know, if, if that was the approach they took, I guess that that is the approach they took. They, they didn't really lose anything in that um, interim analysis yep. uh, consideration because they still have the hard outcomes. They exactly. can still analyze that the, the way it was originally intended, plus the, you know, the inclusion of the softer uh, endpoints and then appropriately you know, caveat that in their limitation section. Exactly. Just do both. Be upfront about the reasons that you're doing it 
and draw reasonable inferences. One, I wouldn't also wonder if this would have been a, a perfect opportunity for a DSMB to do an interim analysis around this. and give, Utility give the, assessment. Essentially, or, you know, give know. the investigators some reason to sort of like say, like, are, you know, are you able to, with your current design, deliver a, a reasonable answer? And maybe they did that, I maybe they don't know. I, I just wonder if that I think the answer could is probably going to be no, given they were underpowered, unless they had a bigger effect. And I wouldn't want to stop this study early it just seems like we want to know. It's another kettle of worms, I yeah. suppose. Stop All right, really. well, let's let's leave it there. Um, that one was quite a bit more heated than I thought it was going to be. Let's move to our amazing and amusing. So this is our last segment where we want to highlight some of the things that make us just laugh out loud or enjoy our jobs even more and look at the amazing things that go on in this world of science. Chris, what do you got for us? Um, nothing of any interest, apparently. Um, very boring stuff. I found this article in the journal PNAS, Proceedings of the National Academies of Sciences. Got it. Right? Um, about, uh, it's entitled, Nouns Slow Down Speech Across Structurally and Culturally Diverse uh, diverse Languages. Nouns. Nouns. Nouns and are the breaks. Nouns are the breaks in speech. And that's okay. basically the, the theme of this article. And they did it using a very clever set of analyses where they taped people in eight, uh, nine different languages to see if this is a universal effect. And then they looked at the grammatical constructs in their sentences and measured the, the, the amount of time that people like spent trying to state a word uh, as opposed to when they would delay coming up with the next word. And they found that, oh. that the time to, to generate a noun versus a verb was statistically longer across almost all nine languages and that the amount of pauses you put before stating a new word that was a noun was much longer than when you um, had a pause before a verb. Uh, and the, the kind of fascinating thing about this is that, you know, English, for example, has a very large oh, really vocabulary. So there's about, it's hard to, hard to count them um, because what do you, you know, is teriyaki an English word or a Japanese word? This is, you know, like right. where, where do we draw the boundaries between our language and, and words that have been appropriated? But generally we think that English has about half a million words in it. And of those, two thirds of the words are nouns. Um, and about uh, a, a, about a quarter of them are adjectives, and the rest is everything else. And so verbs are actually oh, a very small number. So there's a, there's a there's a very few you know there's a, a relatively small numbers of things that you can do that is to say verbs mm, as opposed to the numbers of things that you can name, which is things. almost infinite. And so oh, that's really it, it's kind of like random access memory where the brain has to like sort of pull in these things which are used very rarely, which are, are nouns, um, and pull them down into a sentence structure. And that takes time, processing time. And that's what they've shown. And they've shown this is a basically a universal effect across all languages. That's pretty cool. It was, it was very cool. It was very cool. Yeah. So that, that, that uh, was, I think, a neat article. So it is... Um, Seifert and colleagues, again in PNAS, noun slowdown speech across structurally and culturally diverse languages. PNAS, really cool. uh, 20 recent. 20, 20 recent. 20, 20 recent. I can't see the date on it. I've been there. 2018. So Very cool. Just, just came out. All right. Well, I'm going to go next. Uh, Dom will leave you for last. And I've got an article here from the BMJ. It is uh, from September of 2016. Uh, sorry, excuse me, accepted in September. This was published in their December edition. And the title of the article, this is from Andrew Gray and colleagues. The title of the article is, We Read Spamalot. Prospective, <laughs> prospective cohort study wasn't of... That, wasn't that a, a musical? It, it, was. Was, it was so funny. 
I've never seen it, but I would like to. We read Spam a lot, a prospective cohort study of unsolicited and unwanted academic invitations. So we spent a lot of time on the podcast talking about these invitations that we get to be reviewers or to submit article, no, more to submit articles to journals that are uh, not in our field or say, we really enjoyed your publication, quote, nothing in between. <laughs> Things like that. Um, so these these folks got pretty annoyed. Dear Dr. Gil CJ. Dr. Gil CJ, yep. These guys got pretty annoyed. Uh, and so they got together and looked at uh, how many of them they were getting and then tried an intervention to try and reduce them. So this was, uh, in the abstract, it says, uh, under the objective was to assess the amount, relevance, content, and suppressibility of academic electronic spam invitations to attend conferences or submit Manuscripts, the participants were five intrepid academics and, and a great many publishers, editors, and conference organizers. And the main outcomes were the number of spam invitations received before, immediately after, and one year after unsubscribing from senders' distribution lists. Okay. And they found, okay, so they said the inclusion criteria were personal acquaintance with the first author, a sense of humor, a relentless wish to conduct lead, leading-edge research, desperation for academic output, and an inability to say no. <laughs> One person, of course, had to be excluded because they had an ability to say no. Uh, and then they went and they uh, conducted this experiment. Uh, they have a nice table here in which they list each of the five members, and they list their number of research years experience, publications at the end of 2013, presentations in 2013, and their level height of esteem based on the height of esteem referenced in the spam letters that they were getting. So they were often referred to as most esteemed. <laughs> so they, esteemed. Turns out they are all highly esteemed. Oh, really? Yes. Oh, it's uh, not just me? And what they found was that they get a, an average of 312 ca uh, calendar month. Each calendar month, they were getting an average of 312 spam invitations. And that after they unsubscribed from as many of them that would allow them to, the number of spams that they got went down, and then a year later went right back up. Not to where it had started, but went way back up. And they give some examples of the spam that they were getting. They categorized them into friendly and exuberant, aspirational and dedicated and thematic. So some of the friendly and exuberant ones would be, we would really be happy to anchor with you. Don't know what that <laughs> means. Let your wisdom enkindle others. Looking forward to an everlasting scientific relationship. We have been through your articles and we are enthralled to know about your reputation and commitment in the field. So I just thought that was a, uh, a nice use of an actual pre-post intervention study <laughs> on something that we care deeply about. So what was the magnitude of the effect? Like how, how much could they drive the spam levels down? Yeah. Well, I don't know there was that much, largely because very not many of this have an unsubscribe button. But it went from about 350, let's say, down to about 200 and then back up to under 300. So they, they definitely had an effect. I think they were all Russian bots. Could be. Could definitely be. could be. All right, Don, what mature thing do you have for us this time? <laughs> well, I'd like to just register a complaint. Okay, what uh, would you because, like to... Because, because the listeners don't realize that there are two really important studies that I have found to be very um, entertaining. <laughs> and uh -huh. Uh -huh. Matt has uh -huh. prevented me. no. No, 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 because, no, no. Because you were not able to, <laughs> you were not able to keep a straight face. Keep a straight face. It is true. So the listeners are aware. At least so far, two of Don's 
weird wacky science, as he calls it, have been nixed from the program due to my inability to keep a straight face. I right. will agree with that. Right. So uh, unfortunately, I'm having to go to, to my, my B pile. The B pile. Right. Okay. Which Give I'm, it not, to us. I'm not that happy about. I'm so, anyway, sorry about that. Here is a, here's a study that was published in Consciousness and Cognition. Yep, which we read all the time. Right. Which is entitled by Mary, Marina Di Tommaso, Michelle Sardaro, and Paola Lavria from... Mm-hmm. Uh, Bari, Italy, Yep. entitled Aesthetic Value of Paintings Affects Pain Thresholds. Oh, okay, yeah. So uh, what they did, I don't know, how, since I haven't really read it <laughs> carefully because my first uh, study was next, but basically what they did is they, they, um, they found a, uh, 12 he- healthy vo- volunteers who graded specific images in terms of how beautiful they were, paintings and photographs and stuff like that. And that each of those 12 healthy volunteers had a gradation in terms of uh, the images that they would that they have had previously um, graded. And they were then um, given an external stimuli, which was um, laser pulses <laughs> to the left hand what now? measured to induce pain. And, oh, and so the pain that, that was mean. that the the, the 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 sensation of pain that they experienced by having a laser be pointed <laughs> at their left hand was modulated by the quality of the image in which really? they had previously graded in their estimation. Why, so why can we watching not get beautiful paid to do paintings, like watching beautiful paintings or, or photographs, diminished the pain that they experienced when they had a laser. Um, so by zapping, them. zapping their left hand. By analogy, could could this be made worse by looking at ugly paintings? That that's the uh, the obvious follow up. I mean, study. that needs to be done. Yeah, yeah. Wow. wow. And how the, how did they objectively define beautiful versus crappy paintings? It didn't matter because it was all in the eye of the beholder. So they they self said like Correct. this is a beautiful painting, Correct. and then they're like, Correct. oh, I don't even notice that that my right. left so each twelve thumb went... has got a little. Uh, smoke I, coming I would, out of it. I wouldn't say that they didn't notice. <laughs> it's like, I don't mind. Yeah. My hand, wow, the hairs Renoir. have been just removed from yeah, my This right. Renoir has really changed my opinion. Of wow. That, okay. that is, that but I, let me say that the study that was next was a much better study I, and, and mu- would have been much more of interest to the listening. All we can say is that it had something vaguely to do with guys in bicycle shorts. And we'll just <laughs> leave it at that. <laughs> All right. Well, we're at the end of the program. If you've got any feedback on this or any other episode, or you want to suggest a study or a topic for us to take on, you can tweet us at, at @pophealthyx, or tweet me at, at @profmatfox, or Chris at id.gill, or Don at, at @dtheo1. Or you can find us on the Population Health Exchange website at www.pophealthyx.org. We want to thank Leslie Talali and Director of Lifelong Learning at BU School of Public Health for supporting the podcast, and Nick Guler for sound and editing. I, did you notice I had to pause there before the nouns? Yes, you I did. I did. Point, so thanks, 0.15 milliseconds on average. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed it, and we hope you will download our next episode. Then cue the music. Do-do-do-do-do-do. <laughs>